0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to welcome Stacey Wolf, professor at Princeton University, to speak about Beyond Broadway, the pleasure and promise of musical theater across America. Why is it that Americans, you know, I mean, high schools, colleges across the country, it has must have had a huge influence on our culture because that's a part of so many kids' childhoods. So thanks a lot for coming, Stacy.
2: Thank you so much. Um, thanks, George, for organizing this evening, and thank you so much, everyone, for being here my friends, some of my friends who I've known for a really long time, and um, especially Donna and Barbara, who let me stay at their house when I was doing some research on this book. When I get to certain parts of it, you'll know uh, what the when I stayed at their house. Um, yeah, okay. When I say musical theater, what images come to mind? New York City, the bright lights of Broadway, Times Square... Maybe, or maybe not. Maybe you think of your high school musical, or a show you did at summer camp, or a community theater production you saw. Broadway is the birthplace and the brand, but the lifeblood of musical theater is in local and amateur venues across the country. That is, high schools, outdoor summer theaters, and community theaters, summer camps, after school programs, dinner theaters, and more. Were it not for local musical theater, in fact, there would be no Broadway musicals. Why? First, there would be no Broadway artists, as virtually every actor, director, choreographer, stage manager, designer, backstage, front stage began in a high school musical or community theater show in their town. Second, there would be no Broadway audiences, because a vast number of spectators go to Broadway to see a show that they know from seeing it or doing it at home. Third, there would be no Broadway repertoire, because licensing companies earn 50% of their gross from amateur productions. So, even a musical that fails financially on Broadway, as 80% do, can make back its investment through years of high school and community theater productions. Starting in 2012, I went on a seven year road trip traveling across America to see musical theater. I was curious to understand how musical theater works locally and as part of a national ecosystem. I wanted to know where and how musicals happen, why people participate, and why they go to see musicals in their towns. Why does musical theater, this slow, complexly collaborative, face-to-face artistic activity, continue to thrive in our culture of big data and screens and distractedness? How is it a meaningful activity for kids and adults alike? So for the next 35 minutes, I want to share with you some of the places I visited, nine to be exact, and the people I met, the productions I saw, and the lessons I learned. I learned not just how local musicals sustain Broadway, but how local musicals sustain the local. In other words, local musical theater contributes to a community's art scene, and it also contributes to a community's well-being. So let's go. I started my journey in New York City, visiting the busy offices of Music Theatre International, the largest licensing company in the world. Licensors oversee the rights to a show on behalf of the creators. They publish and distribute the scripts and scores, enabling any theater to do a show while protecting the copyright. At MTI, a team of 20 people each handle 100 phone calls and many more email queries a day. They deal with licensing requests and also answer questions like, what's a great show to do with a cast of Mostly Girls? That's a typical question. And a little less often, questions like, how do I make the carpet fly in Aladdin? (laughs) MTI was founded in 1952, but in the past 25 years, the business has transformed local productions. First, MTI produces a whole host of ancillary materials, such as scenic projection backdrops, which can replace painted flats, and digitized accompaniment tracks, which can include the show's entire orchestration or only certain instruments to supplement what a local orchestra can play live. For example, many public high schools host marching bands in which students play brass and woodwinds and some percussion, and these same students often play in the orchestra of the high school musical. Some smaller schools, like one I visited in Sabina, Ohio, lack a string program. When they did Into the Woods, Sam, the music teacher, solved this problem by budgeting $1,400, which was 90% of their budget, mind you, but he did budget $1,400 to rent tracks to fill in the violin and the cello and the bass. These products, as well as increasingly robust websites, support musical theater production at every level. The licensor's most significant activity has been the development of the Broadway Junior Catalog. As the story goes, in 1996, Stephen Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence walked into the office of Freddie Gershon, then the president of MTI. They were worried that musical theater was dying, that young people didn't know their shows and weren't doing their shows, and they also might have been been worried about declining royalties, but that's another issue. So Gershon had an idea. He said, let's adapt your shows for kids. We'll cut them to an hour. And let's start with Into the Woods. The first act ends with happily ever after. So the story makes sense. Sondheim agreed and the first junior show was born. And because of Sondheim's influence in the theater world, other creators signed on for adaptations. Annie junior and fiddler on the roof junior were up next launching an entire industry of one hour cla- one hour versions of classic musicals designed to be performed by kids the junior shows are built to fit into a school day both the rehearsals and the performances the vocal parts are transposed to keys appropriate for young voices and the songs are shorter Violence is toned down, though heterosexual romance so central in musical theater remains. Just as important, when a school licenses a Broadway junior show for around the cost of $500 a show, they also receive a show kit. This is a step-by-step guide to producing musical theater, from how to run auditions, to casting advice, to creating a rehearsal schedule, to building costumes and sets inexpensively. These guides mean that even a fourth-grade teacher who's never done a play can produce and direct one in their school. By 2018, 2018, school productions accounted for almost 25% of licensing companies' income. MTI has licensed more than 100,000 productions, and they calculate that 5 million students have participated in a Broadway junior show. The creation of the juniors has expanded the presence of musical theater in middle and elementary schools beyond all imagination. And now we'll see where and how. From New York City, I traveled to Atlanta, Georgia, to the Junior Theater Festival, or JTF. Since 2003, more than 4,000 middle school-aged children and their teachers and directors have gathered each January during MLK Junior Weekend to celebrate musical theater at JTF. Produced by MTI, Playbill, and iTheatrics, which is the company that actually creates the juniors, the convention features 90 school or community groups who present a 15 minute segment from a musical that they performed or rehearsed at home, and they perform it for professional artist adjudicators for immediate feedback. The weekend also includes workshops for kids and their teachers, a presentation of musical numbers from new, about-to-be-released shows to instill excitement, Q&A with professional artists, and an elaborate award ceremony during which almost every group of the 90 is publicly recognized in some way. Uh, There's also a dance party for kids. JTF, like the other businesses that surround musical theater, especially musical theater for kids, the Junior Theater Festival is contradictory in its politics. On the one hand, it's fueled by progressive language and democratic affirmations. At the same time, it's unabashedly profit-driven since MTI licenses the very repertoire of musicals that the children perform. When I attended the festival, I was moved by its power to validate kids who love musical theater, but I also noticed the excessive attention given to boys. Girls outnumbered boys 10 to 1, but at every all-conference gathering, the adults praised the boys who were there. I would have loved to see this as an occasion to celebrate girls. Obvious class differences were impossible to miss, too. Some kids come from wealthy public schools or performing arts academies, and others hold bake sales all year long to pay for transportation, accommodations, and registration. But all in all, I was glad to see all kinds of kids there. The JTF experience in all its big, loud, and hectic, over-the-top glory made me curious to look more closely at after-school programs and the adults who run them. That's what brought me here. In San Anselmo, California, just across the bridge, I found Marilyn Izdebski, who epitomizes a figure I call the backstage diva. She is the musical theater director who runs pay-to-play programs and directs several shows a year, and someone like her can be found in most American towns. Maybe you're thinking of your own backstage diva right now if she's not Marilyn. Marilyn, I had one for sure. She's a larger-than-life person, pictured here with her dog, Bobby, and a disciplined leader and powerful mentor who, though invisible in theater history, teaches kids to sing and dance and act and shapes them into triple-threat performers. She also helps them to grow up. Marilyn casts any child who comes through the door, whether their parents pay or they're on scholarship. She started her business in 1978, and over her 40-year career of directing six shows a year, each with a cast of 60 to 100 kids, Marilyn estimates that she's worked with more than 10,000 children. She directed Guys and Dolls seven times, Annie six times, and Evita four times, for which she always cast a total of six girls as Ava, three at different ages, and then double-cast the whole show. When she directed Gypsy, Marilyn didn't change the script, but she did enhance a few of the musical numbers to include more kids. For example, the show opens with an audition scene, and this is where Baby June sings Let Me Entertain You. There are about five or six people in the scene. In Marilyn's production, before that song... (laughs) Sixty kids of various shapes and sizes performed the overture, which was elaborately choreographed. So in the the script, it's a 30-second scene. In Marilyn's production, it clocked in at eight minutes. (laughs) But every child was on stage during the show's opening. What I witnessed at Marilyn's auditions and rehearsals, both the early rehearsals in which she was really teaching more than directing, and then the later tech and dress rehearsals with a small army of adult volunteers scurrying around the theater to get the set and lights and numerous costumes and props ready, was someone who can push push an experienced teenage performer to perfect her triple-traveling time step as easily as she could coat a shy 10-year-old to stand on stage without visibly trembling. Not only that, every child, no matter how small their role, gets multiple costume changes, each one with ribbons and sequins. In return, Marilyn gets undying loyalty. The kids refer to specific musicals they've done, not as Rodgers and Hammerstein shows or Stephen Schwartz shows, but as Marilyn shows. As one of Marilyn's kids, as they call themselves, a teenager who performed in 31 Marilyn shows, said, "...there really aren't that many people who could do all the things she does. She choreographs them, she designs the lights, she basically stage manages them, and for one person to do all that is outstanding." We often take this familiar figure for granted or reduce her to depictions of quirkiness or outlandishness. But I came away with newfound respect for Marilyn's knowledge, energy, and commitment, her astonishingly wide range of theatrical and pedagogical skills, and her investment in her community. Many of the children and teens who perform in the backstage divas shows go on to do musical theater in high school. Virtually every high school in the country, and that's more than 26,000, hosts a theater program and produces an annual musical. Popular musicals for high schools these days include The Addams Family and The Little Mermaid, both of which failed on Broadway, but are nonetheless making a killing in high schools. Into the Woods has held its place for a while as the fourth most popular show, and I saw productions of this musical in Baltimore, Palo Alto, here in San Francisco, and at three public high schools in the Midwest. High schoolers who participate in musical theater benefit, whether they're on stage or behind the scenes as stage managers, set builders, or light board operators. They gain confidence, solidify their identities, and find community among their peers. At some schools, like Belleville High School in Michigan, an amorphous group of 60 kids, which is about 4% of the school's population, forms a clan of self-named theater geeks. But at Wilmington High School in Sabina, Ohio, a full third of the students are involved in the production in some way. The two rural schools I visited lack a theater space, so they perform in historic civic auditoriums an annual event, and the whole community attends. At the high schools I visited, all of the teachers said they chose Into the Woods, which is an admittedly difficult show musically, because they thought the students were up to it. And true, the students I met everywhere sang very well. They were also impressively thoughtful and articulate about the musical's relevance in their town. In Worthington, Minnesota, for example, starting in 2000, a huge influx of Latino and Karen immigrants shifted the town's demographics to make it the most racially diverse region in Minnesota outside the Twin Cities. But tensions still exist between white farm families who've lived there for generations and newer arrivals who are people of color. Stage manager Charlotte, herself from a farm family, said, The giant represents a force bigger than us. That means our differences, so we have to come together to overcome it. In Sabina, Ohio, no one I met talked about immigration, but rather about poverty, about the opioid crisis, and about the loss of 10,000 jobs when a nearby DHL hub closed. Harper, who played the narrator, told me that the second act is life, The woods is life. You have to go out there and stand up for yourself. High school musicals can become a flashpoint for community values. Typically, typically, these conflicts pit the liberal theater teacher and the students against a conservative school board or superintendent. Cancelled productions include, for example, Sweeney Todd, which some find too violent, Les Mis, which uses guns, Rent, which presents gay characters in a positive light. And there can be other struggles, too. Cherry Hill High School in New Jersey tried to perform ragtime, but they cut the N-word, which breaks the licensing agreement. For a production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame in Ithaca, New York, the director cast a white girl as Esmeralda the Roma, which led to protests and ultimately canceled the show. These and other stories, to my mind, attest to the power of high school musicals in a community. At high schools, I also learned about the remarkable array of acting techniques used by young performers. Anthony, who played the baker in Belleville High School's production, explained that he started by identifying similarities between the him, between the characters and himself. But his key tool for character development was YouTube. He explained, I watched the Broadway show to see how he did it. I watched the 2002 revival to see how their actor did it. I watched some school versions to see how their bakers were doing it and definitely took some ideas and planted them with my own experience. Anthony's description of his process was repeated by almost every student I met. They all watched many different versions of productions and borrowed physicality and gestures, vocal inflections and comic timing from performances they liked. And each felt the work, a kind of imitative bricolage, to be entirely creative and individual. Each felt ownership over their role. In this way, the students unconsciously engage in serious performance analysis. They are active agents in their own training, incorporating technology and using it to their own ends. For some people, graduating from high school is the end of their musical theater career, but others continue to do theater as part of a community theater. Community theaters began in the U.S. in the early 20th century as a way to promote patriotism and to instill civic pride through performance. There are now more than 7,000 community theaters across the country. I spent a lot of time at my local community theater, the Kelsey Theater, observing auditions and rehearsals, going to board and production meetings. I even got to go to a cast party, interviewing people, and of course, seeing shows like Little Chop of Horrors, Next to Normal, Pippin, The Secret Garden, and many others. So what did I learn? First, the assumed binary between work and leisure is a fiction Those who do community theater have day jobs in an office, at school, in a store, or at home. Then they go to the theater on the evenings and weekends to work, but differently. They engage in what sociologist Robert Robert Stebbins calls serious leisure. And one study showed that community theater artists actually calibrate their energy to give it all to a show, knowing that after several months of rehearsal and performance, they'll return to their other lives. People do community theater for a variety of reasons. As Kyrus, an actor and director who's always doing a show, said, It's a release. We work 9 to 5, and then we have a choice. Go home and watch TV, or take the opportunity to be someone else and do something else. And a live audience, nothing beats it. Some do it for artistic opportunities they wouldn't otherwise get, like the many Latinx actors who auditioned for In the Heights. Some seek community, or as one producer called it, ready-made friends. Another producer called it forced camaraderie. Some people do it to get away from their families. And some because their whole family participates. It's not unusual for someone to be hanging around just waiting for a relative to finish rehearsal and suddenly find themselves charged with some responsibility and soon deeply involved. In fact, community theater is a rare intergenerational space in our culture. It's not unusual to see a six-year-old and a 60-year-old in the same show. And there are two types of people at community theater, as John, a frequent actor and director, told me. Bees or butterflies. The bees stick around and keep the theater running, and the butterflies do one show and fly away. In the many hours I spent observing rehearsals from first read-through to tech and dress, I was impressed with each director's unerringly upbeat and mostly calm energy. As Frank, a frequent director, told me, people are volunteering their time, so you have to make it a positive experience for them. One occasion stands out. At a rehearsal for Into the Woods, there was a lot of Into the Woods these past (laughs) few years, Kyrus, who was directing the show, started with what he hoped would be a quick review of the last song in Act One, Ever After. The performers' first attempt at this long and complicated ensemble number was a disaster. Everyone bumped into each other, no one remembered to sing, and the actors all looked at each other accusingly. (laughs) Kyrus adjusted the spacing and told them, there won't be collisions if everyone moves with confidence. If you hesitate, you'll crash. Mike, the musical director who sat at the piano, added, and please sing, and everyone grinned sheepishly. They tried it again. No good. Kairos had them start on the other foot, and again. After about 15 minutes of working on the number, Kairos said cheerfully, Okay, everybody, take five. And as the actors dashed out to the bathroom or to check their phones, he opened his diagram-laden notebook to turn over a fresh page. Without missing a beat or revealing any anxiety whatsoever, he re-choreographed the entire number. When everyone came back from break, He replaced the movement of the song with simpler steps, though he never told them that the new choreography was easier. Everyone learned it quickly, and it worked. In addition to the thousands of year-round community theaters across the country, many cities also support outdoor musicals, typically in unique and beautiful natural settings. I saw three productions of The Sound of Music at outdoor theaters. The surrounding nature enhanced the show. Do you believe those swastikas were so huge? I know. The mountain play is so big that when you actually sit in the audience, they don't look so huge like that. But they are really crazy in this picture. Um, So the surrounding nature enhanced the show. And each version reflected the local culture from casting to dealing with the weather to the various rituals that attend each venue. The Mountain Play, in very nearby Marin County, California, has produced one musical each spring since 19—one play each spring since 1913 in an amphitheater that seats almost 4,000 people on the top of Mount Tamalpais. It's an all-day affair, starting with getting on a school bus at Mount Tam High School, carrying your stocked picnic basket, hat and sunscreen, and many layers of clothing in tow. For 45 minutes, you you ride up a winding road, and at the top of the mountain, you arrive at a spectacularly beautiful view, a stage with a ridiculously wide proscenium, and a production with real vehicles and live animals, and weather that can be sunny and hot and drizzly and cold, all within the same performance. (laughs) The Zilker Summer Musical in Austin, Texas, which was established in 1959, offers an annual free musical on a hillside that attracts thousands of spectators, many of whom would not otherwise see a play ever. In the late afternoon, you lay down your blanket on the hill above Barton Springs Pool, not far from the city's downtown. You'll maybe go swimming or get something to eat at the snack bar, and the show starts at dusk when the temperature might drop to a balmy 85 degrees. The Open Air Theater in Washington Crossing State Park in New Jersey, which opened in 1964, presents 13 different shows each summer to more than 18,000 spectators. There, you'll sit in a concrete-built theater in a natural dell surrounded by tall trees. You'll get bitten by mosquitoes, even as you can see the lines of planes getting ready to land at Newark Airport just 60 miles away. Going to each of these places is a beloved local ritual, and seeing the show is just a part of it. At the Mountain Play, I talked with three generations of a family as they were imbibing some really nice wine and eating cheese and crackers. They told me that they've come up the mountain for the show every year since the 1970s, and that some of them were going to hike the six miles down the mountain after the performance. "'At Zilker, I met a mother with three daughters, aged four, six, and eight, "'who had seen the show every night it played. "'They were already at 16 performances "'and planned to return for the remaining 10. "'They know every word and every note,' the mother told me, "'and whispered, "'the younger one thinks the Von Trapp kids are really a family.'" <laughs> At Washington Crossing, everyone milled about and chatted and seemed to know each other. With a new show opening every two weeks, audiences bought punch cards and attended theater as regularly as going to watch Little League baseball games. At all of these venues, little kids could stroll about or even make noise during the show. It's a perfect way to introduce kids to theater. Also, it was clear that attending the show allowed people to perform their civic pride, in addition to seeing and enjoying a musical. Also taking place in the summer, but at the other end of the scale, are musicals that are produced every week in the tiny, insular, homogeneous culture of girls' non-Orthodox Jewish summer camps in Maine. These summer camps were founded by progressive Jewish women educators in the early 20th century. And since the beginning, campers have participated in theater as a required activity alongside swimming, volleyball, and arts and crafts. The girls perform for the entire camp, one show per week, which they call their bunk show. So musical theater shapes their experiences in profound ways. And as a side note, Stephen Sondheim attended a boys' version of these camps. He went to Androscoggin, um, which is also in Maine. Many girls attend camp for seven years, performing in a musical each summer and seeing six more, acquiring cultural capital year by year. The theater counselor, who's typically a college student, is faced with the daunting task of season selection. The requirements. Don't repeat the same play over one camper's years at camp, which means that the counselor needs to come up with 49 different shows before <laughs> repeating one. Provide as many good parts as possible, pick something that the girls will be excited about, keep it under an hour, and make it appropriate for seven-year-olds. Andy, who worked at Camp Kinio, explained to me learning about this requirement when he got hired. They did gypsy a while here back, and I was like, gypsy? Like, how do you make that age appropriate? And they were like, well, we just didn't do the second act. And I was like, what? And then I was like, okay. For each age group, the musicals are rehearsed at an alarming speed, less than a week from page to stage, though all activities except for swimming are suspended to work on the show. Musical theater intensifies the values that the camp espouses of individual bravery, group solidarity, and camp loyalty. In an all-girls setting, it also provides opportunities for girls to take up space and play the often juicy men's roles, or play something else. When I visited Kineo, they were rehearsing Sister Act, a gospel-inflected musical that takes place in a convent. As they were working on a scene, one girl stopped mid-sentence. "'I have a question,' she said. "'What's Protestant?' (laughs) I was already thinking that it was fascinating to see a bunch of Jewish girls playing nuns and one as Dolores, a role that's usually played by an African-American actor. This moment, though, foregrounded the insularity of their community. No one giggled or rolled her eyes.' Instead, a quick lesson in religion ensued, mostly narrated with great gentleness and tact by the 24-year-old Tessa, the choreographer, who was the oldest grown-up there. And the rehearsal continued. Likely, that camper, and perhaps others in the group, lived in a predominantly Jewish area or simply had not been exposed to other religions. Perhaps that afternoon's rehearsal and discussion prompted a small degree of cross-cultural understanding. Some of the most popular musicals at summer camp and everywhere are Disney shows. In fact, by 2018, over 100 million Americans, and that's almost one-third of the population of this country, had participated in, worked on, or seen a live Disney show. Across the country, Beauty and the Beast alone has been performed more often than the four longest-running Broadway shows combined. As Thomas Schumacher, president of Disney theatrical group, said, Disney's music is the new American songbook. We are this new era of Broadway. Durham, North Carolina, and Nashville were the next stops on my journey. Disney's involvement in the local musical theater scene includes the creation of 60-minute junior and 30-minute kids' scripts that come with directors' guides for their teachers, and these shows see thousands of productions each year. In 2011, Disney launched Disney Musicals in Schools, an ambitious philanthropic program to support musical theater production in underserved elementary schools. From Nashville to Newark, from Omaha to Oklahoma City, Disney hires local teaching artists who team with classroom teachers to put on one of Disney's seven kids shows, providing free scripts and fully orchestrated recorded music. At the end of the school year, all the kids and their teachers troop off to each city's local performing arts center, where they perform a song from their show as their professional debut. Over the past nine years, Disney Musicals in Schools has expanded to 388 schools in 26 cities, with more than 43,000 students and over 1,000 teachers participating their aim to seed musical theater production in every elementary school in the US to me this agenda a balance of profit seeking a balance of profit seeking corporate interests and philanthropic grassroots artistic activism is complicated on the one hand disney is a colonizer of young minds and bodies its representations are formative for kids Though the repertoire will change when new properties like Mulan and Frozen are adapted, most of Disney's current shows offer only stereotypical roles for girls like Cinderella, and they perpetuate racial stereotypes such as the hyenas in The Lion King and the orientalized characters in Aladdin. On the other hand... Disney's tested and retested product guarantees a successful production. Their guides enable any teacher, even someone with no theater experience at all, to put on a terrific show. Studies have proven that participation in musical theater strengthens reading, improves attention, and that kids are more likely to attend and to stay in school when they can be in a show. Just as important, Disney is increasing racial and socioeconomic diversity in musical theater production through this program, starting with kids, and this is where change will happen. Disney has at once increased its revenue and become an instigator of social change and youth empowerment through musical theater. For my final stop on this journey that really I didn't want to end, I went to a venue that people think died years ago, (laughs) dinner theatres. This hybrid of a restaurant and a theater was hugely popular in the 1970s. Typically run by businessmen who were usually not theater people, dinner theaters brought culture to the suburbs, offering their customers a one-stop experience, drinks, dinner, and a show, often followed by dancing. What made dinner theaters successful in the 1970s is the same today. Good value and ample parking. In their heyday, there were more than 250 dinner theaters across America. Today, a handful exist, including four operations in Colorado, along Interstate 25 and the Front Range, all within an hour's drive of each other. They both compete with and support one another, and each has a different identity in the region. The Candlelight Dinner Playhouse, newly built in 2008, does big, glossy musicals. I saw Kiss Me Kate there. The Midtown Art Center in Fort Collins does edgy new shows. I saw a wonderful production of Fun Home there. Jesters is essentially a community theater with food. I saw a large cast production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat after being served dinner by one of the actors, who was the son of the director who owns the theater with his wife, who is the musical director, and get this, the couple lives there, literally. Literally. At BDT Stage in Boulder, um, which has been around since 1977, it's a smaller venue that does a range of shows, including more intimate productions, such as the show I saw, Always Patsy Cline. What matters about dinner theater in this region is that local artists can make a living by performing at dinner theaters and waiting tables. Ally King, the star of Patsy Cline, who's worked there for 20 years, told me, We can buy a house and have a family here. We don't know if we'll be cast in every show, but there's enough work to go around. As for acting and waiting tables at once, Allie thrives on the unusual dynamic, as she told me, I love it because I get to establish an actual relationship with the audience. So after this coast-to-coast seven-year adventure, what can I say about local musical theater now? I'll offer four brief concluding thoughts. First, big business. Licensors like MTI and corporations like Disney are major players in the musical theater ecosystem, and they affect what happens even at the smallest local venues. Second, technology intensifies engagement. YouTube and bootleg productions provide access to and knowledge of a show you're unable to see live. This accessibility means that the creative teams have to navigate previous productions, either by imitating them or contradicting them or trying to ignore them. Also, these online performances, I would argue, make people want to see live theater even more. Musical theater creates and it benefits community. Some sociologists bemoan what they see as a lack of civic engagement in our culture. But musical theater contradicts that observation. Musical theater participation forms community, and audiences feel connected to where they live by seeing local shows. And finally... Musical theater performance is pretty much everywhere, in rural and urban areas, in big cities and small towns, from coast to coast and beyond. The musical theater repertoire is national, but each production, from The Sound of Music, to Little Shop of Horrors, to Annie, always Annie, takes on the dialect, style, and culture of the local context. And as I hope I've shown tonight... Musical theater's continued popularity and vibrancy attest to the pleasure and promise of musical theater beyond Broadway. Thank you.
1: Wow. (laughs) That was a great different look at it, and I I, I really particularly appreciate the idea that Broadway is a lost leader for some shows. Um, You know, that that, that they really make their money on their... uh, doing it all across America. So anyway, I'd like to remind our audiences that are listening to Professor Stacey Wolf of Princeton speak about her book, um, Beyond Broadway, The Pleasures and Promise of Musical Theater Across America. So uh, it's time for questions. Who would like to ask a question?
3: Hi. As you were doing this research, what did you find was the influence of the TV show High School Musical? <laughs>
2: did someone plant you in the audience to ask that question? <laughs> Um, High School Musical, well, High School Musical is really what transformed musical theater in the 21st century. So musicals were very much a part of mainstream culture, as I think many of you know, in the 50s and 60s um, with the Ed Sullivan Show and with cast albums and with films like like The Sound of Music and West Side Story. um, It was very much a part of mainstream culture. And from, say, the 60s to 2006, when High School Musical aired, it was kind of declining, although those of us who were musical theater people never stopped being musical theater people. But when High School Musical... Aired in two thousand and six um I believe the number is seven point one million people watched it that first night. Um, it was by far the largest viewership for a disney created film and then they aired it again one night later, and that night, I believe that six point six million people watched it and that was the transformation of musical theater. Primarily because it demonstrated that boys could be boys and still do musicals. Because Troy Bolton, who's the star of that show, is a basketball player and he also loves musical theater. So from that point on, everything changed. Um, That was 2006. And then we had Glee, we had the television show Smash, which I recently heard um, for actual musical theater, for actual interest in musical theater performance, Smash was. A very significant force because it shows what happened backstage and so it gave young people not only kind of the glossy front but a sense of oh this is what goes into making a show and once smash aired um applications to bfa musical theater programs doubled tripled quadrupled because of that show um and we also have america um American Idol, is that what it's called? Yeah, American Idol, Dancing with the Stars, so these other shows that were coming about at the same time. But High School Musical really broke all that open. Um, One of the books that I quote in my book is a really fantastic book called uh, Theater Geek about Stage Door Manor, which is a famous musical theater summer camp. I did not write about that camp at all. But Mickey Rabkin, who's the author of that book, talks about how Stage Door Manor had to build a new boys dorm in 2008 because there was such interest among boys in musicals from that time on. And even though, as I said, there are many, many more girls who do musicals than boys from High School Musical, there were more boys who who were involved. So thank you for that wonderful question.
1: Next question. Anybody want to ask a specific question about some musical that they have inside track?
0: It was not specifically about a musical, but about the Cappies in Washington, D.C., mm. that program. What do you think?
2: I hear about... Tell me more about it so I have a stronger context for it. I've heard of it, but I'm not sure what
0: it is. Um, they, they not only... It's, it's high school musicals that are judged, but the judges are high school students. The critics are high school students. And they're all assessed and given awards I'm not everyone gets an award, but um so every there will be a best actress an actor, and all that kind of thing and and then there are specific awards but i what i what I really like is the fact that their critics are high school students, and they have a special row for them all to sit, and they get judged too. I love that so much.
2: No, I I really thought I thought I was an expert on this topic, um, but clearly I'm clearly I have so much to learn. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, no, I had not heard of that. I think. Though what's really interesting about this particular example, and as I saw through my research and kind of struggled with, are these contests and judging and awards, and I think one of the things I always experienced in musical theater growing up and through my years of doing it, is that after auditions, it was not competitive. Once you auditioned and were disappointed that you didn't get the part you wanted, then you kind of came together with the crew to play your part. And uh, of course, everyone, every, every adult who works with kids says, you know, there are no bad rocks. You can play a rock really well. You can play a tree really well. I saw a lot of musicals with trees, a lot of (laughs) musicals with trees, kids playing trees. Um, But I, I do kind of wonder, and I think someone else, Someone else should write something about the relationship more deeply um, between sports culture and musical theater culture. I touch on that in the book. Um, And one of the things that was interesting to me was that many of the schools I went to were trying to help students be able to play sports uh, and also do theater. And I think at some schools at a certain point, usually middle school, they have to choose which direction they're going to go. And I think more and more... um, both the athletic side and the artistic side are trying to accommodate one another. But I feel like there's something having to do with sports that also has to do with awards winning and something competitive. And I feel like um, this sounds like the most wonderful way for there to be a competition, because I love that students are the ones who are judging. But I think there's some interesting issues to be explored that I guess I could do in my next book, theoretically. (laughs) Um, Or one of my students could do it, I suppose.
0: Mm, yeah. How did you decide to do to which venue to visit? How did you, how did you decide on? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> uh,
2: no, I think like most research projects, it's a combination of intention and serendipity. Uh, my research really started here, Because a friend of my brother's who teaches at Redwood High School in Marin said, you have to go to this thing, the mountain play. You're not even going to believe what this thing, what this crazy thing is. And I thought... What What is it? And I got to the mountain plane, I said, okay, this is, this is in my book. So once that was going to be in my book, then there were going to be outdoor theaters in the book. And really like any project, there was one version of this book w- that was only productions of Into the Woods across everywhere. Um, <laughs> there was another version that was about kind of looking at different places because I had spent a fair amount of time here in this area. Um, I saw a fantastic production of Into the Woods at the Jewish community, um, Jewish Community High School in in San Francisco and thought maybe I would write about that. But at certain points, it just kind of started to take shape. And I knew I wanted some geographic diversity. I wanted some racial and socioeconomic diversity. I wanted to look at different venues. And um, so it was kind of a combination of searching things out that I needed and then other things that I just fell across. But I really should say that I could have written this book for sure three or four times and probably 10 times with how much material i had that just went away you know as, as as all books do but um i think that's how most projects like this happen and one of the things that was really hard for me um as probably you could tell just from reading it was where to stop and where, like, where to stop, because everywhere I went, and even just um, on this trip here, coming back to do this, I feel like I've met more people who have said, oh, you need to see this, oh, you need to go there, because it really is everywhere, and I think so many people have been touched and are touched by amateur and local musicals, that there's always another place to go and another place to see and visit. Thanks for that question.
1: Can you explain a little bit about the use of perf- uh, live music versus recorded music?
2: Yes. This, it's um, like many things in the book that I've mentioned um, that I feel conflicted about. I feel enormously conflicted about the use of digitized tracks. So when MTI started digitizing tracks in the 90s, they did it um, as they do everything for two reasons. To make money. Um, to stay ahead of um, do-it-yourselfers Um, People who do musical theater are nothing, if not creative, and able to make something happen absolutely anywhere, no matter what they do or don't have, and to enable musical theater in in really, I think, a a good-hearted way. So everything is about making money and doing good. And the digitized tracks were a part of that. Um, Now, there are many places that don't even consider using live musicians. So So this program, Disney Musicals in Schools, you just get the music. And there's no conversation at these schools about the fact that actually music gets there because musicians play music. And musicians. Learn how to play music, and music is a thing, and music is a part of musical theater. I think some schools do talk about it, but I think in other situations, it's just naturalized as a tape that someone presses go, and it's a huge problem um, to my mind. I think that the places that I'm most excited to visit are the ones that have, like the schools I visited in, a, in, in Ohio, that they used for the one school I visited. They did use some digitized tracks to fill in the instruments that they didn't have, but they had this awesome marching band, and they had 50 kids who played all the marching band instruments, and they played, and they were insistent that they were going to play Into the Woods, an incredibly difficult score, and they had these kids doing it. And I think that when music training, when a school has the resources, a school, for example, has the resources to combine music training uh, with musical theater, that is ideal. Um, For adults, musicians at community theaters are the only people who are paid, the only people who are paid, and all the musicians are paid. Even if they get a tiny little stipend, even if they just are barely getting enough to cover gas, none of the actors are paid ever. Um, They are volunteers they're they're amateurs um, and happily so and so that's partly has to do with the commodity of musicians being harder to get a hold of and good musicians harder to get a hold of but it's a big um it's a really really complicated issue that i'm really conflicted about because I want any place to be able to do musical theater, but music and musicians are a part of musical theater. And even in the professional theater world, all shows want to happen is for an orchestrator to orchestrate the music with fewer players. That is all. That is all they want. So if you are taking, if you're going to do a Stephen Sondheim show, well, let's not say Stephen Sondheim. That's a bad example. Um, if someone is, you know, if someone is writing a, a writing a new show, they want the composer su- seldom orchestrate their own music, but they want an orchestrator, you know, do this for a five piece combo or do this for a five-piece combo, and then you know, some keyboards that we can make sound like other instruments. And it's just about money, and it's really horrible, I think. For the professional theater world, it's awful without any... It's very simple, simply awful.
1: There's, there's another element to that whole uh, you know, conflict over time. If you go back 100 years, there are all these local musicians that were admired and everybody wanted to come in here and hear them play in the summer and stuff like that. And once you could get digital music, everyone said, oh, they're not very good. You know, the, the, the ability to compare local musicians with the top level uh, has, has, again, shifted music to totally over the last century, too. And again, it has some positives and some negatives, but it's very interesting to, to it's another element of the whole thing shifting. Thank you.
3: Um,
2: are unions involved with these community theaters?
1: No.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah no, because they're not because they're not professional, and even the people who get paid something, um, the directors who maybe get paid a thousand dollars. Yeah, no. And even the musicians who play are many of the most of the musicians who play are professional musicians in some way in that they teach in a school or they teach lessons. So they make their living as musicians in a bunch of different ways. But in these contexts, none. No, none of them are uni- unionized. No.
3: I was just going to suggest also that when you are provided with the digital music there is absolutely no room for artistic license from the conductor from the musical director basically whatever musicians you are employing are playing along to a tape to all intents and purposes and the and the singers up on the stage are going to be singing at the tempo and all the rest of it the volume level that is provided for you so you've got a uniform production truly that
2: Truly, that and it, it's um, actually such a great point that you make because what at the different high schools I visited, one of the things that was so fascinating to me was which of the teachers was taking the lead um, sometimes it would be the theater teacher, and sometimes, like the school that I visited that used these tracks, which is why your point is so interesting, it was the music teacher, and in fact the the people who were doing the theater part of it, which to me is kind of important, um, I guess because i'm trained as a theater person, there were, it was kind of a team of teachers who sort of got together and they sort of did the staging and they did a little actor coaching. And it was very unclear to me actually how the acting part of it was happening. I didn't really understand that. Even though I kept asking, who was, who was coaching these kids? Who was, who was telling you where to stand? Who was blocking this number? But the music, this guy was completely in charge. He ran the rehearsal. When they did the show on this huge stage in this beautiful historic um, auditorium in Wilmington, Ohio, it sat 500 people it was packed. You could not get in the door. But he stood in the pit below the stage, and he conducted like this, and the kids watched him like a hawk. They had to, because it was all this digital, the, the strings, which of course sounded like professional artists on strings, because it was. The strings is what propelled the entire show. So the kids had to sing along with that. They could not make a mistake. And the other players had to play along with that, and they could not make a mistake. So... We might say, well, you know, why didn't you hire some string players in rural Ohio? Or why don't you also have a string program in addition to your incredible um, woodwinds and brass program? Or it's really hard to know. But to be sure, and um, when I was watching that, I was thinking, gosh, why are all these kids watching him? And then I realized, oh, they're watching him because they really cannot mess up. And typically, if the actors mess up, especially for high schools, the the musical director will follow them or make, you know, make amends or adjust. And there is no adjustment in that particular scenario. The kids did extraordinarily well. I think probably they had been rehearsing with that tape. And so they knew what to listen for and they knew um, that they had to go with the tempo of that piece. Yeah, that's a great comment. Thank you so much.
0: Well, you you spoke about a number of different levels of uh, youth uh, uh, musical theater, but you didn't speak about the university level. I did not. Which is yours? I don't <laughs> know if you want to share some thoughts, and let me ask a particular question. You said you've uh, done this for twelve years at Princeton University. What what have you seen change over that time? <laughs>
2: That's a Princeton setup. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I didn't I did not write about universities intentionally because I really wanted to focus on the amateur. And even though there are many one of the things I realized is that the distinction also between amateur and professional is very blurry in this world. So even though a lot of adults who work on shows are amateurs, a lot of other people who work on shows are professionals. So for example, Marilyn is She's a professional. Um she's not an amateur and actually in, the terms of all the people in my book, only few of them are amateurs, and I don't know whether you consider children amateurs or not, but it became too... difficult to parse that out but to me university theater is already kind of a step above the same way performing arts summer camps are kind of another uh, beast altogether. In terms of what I see happening in college musicals and universities including Princeton and other places that I visited it's just expanding by leaps and bounds. Like I said um, we don't have a BFA program. We actually don't have a theater major at all. We have a certificate program which is like a minor um, but we have have a ton of students who do student musical theater, is thriving, and who participate in our programs and do shows. Uh, What I see more of, at least at Princeton, and I think I don't know if we are especially encouraging that or if other places are encouraging it, is musical theater writing. And I think that is what we need much more of. I think we need young composers and lyricists to be telling new stories. Um, I think that's how issues of gender and race, which are two problems with musical theater, will change. We'll have a new canon when we have new writers. Um, and I see, I'm mo- I have students who are wonderful performers and fantastic directors and astonishingly talented designers, but I'm especially happy about the ones who are composers and lyricists and librettists and also who are just um, performance makers. I think more and more I see uh, students who don't take on one label, but are kind of doing all of these things and are able to make all kinds of interesting engaging intense performances across disciplines across media and that's really really exciting
1: that, that brings me just a, a question about hamilton because i mean here here was a writer did that that's how has that influenced uh, modern musicals i know that that's hard to do and maybe isn't even on the stages yet for the kids and stuff like that but still it must be influencing musicals.
2: Yeah. Well, if if Hamilton... I mean, if High School Musical was the first thing that transformed musical theater, Hamilton was the second. And it's, it's completely changed everything. I think so many young people who would have no interest in musical theater whatsoever know the Hamilton libretto upside down and backwards. The Hamilton cast album. It is not a soundtrack. Soundtracks are for movies. Uh, I'm saying it here. Soundtracks go with movies. Cast albums are what live humans do in a studio to represent what they do on stage. So if you know Hamilton and you listen to Hamilton, you are listening to the cast album, not the soundtrack. Um, Yeah, well, there is already a lot. uh, There's a ton of imitation of Hamilton that's kind of in the, you know, all all around and and in the air. And I think um, I went to a conference this past weekend and a lot of people were talking about how Hamilton – also has had kind of conflicting influence in the theater community because on the one hand, it's really made producers see that diversity, youth, uh, and different kinds of music and dance are marketable. So that's huge because that's because really the theater owners and the producers are the ones who decide what happens on Broadway, and then that kind of trickles trickles down and around. Um, But there also were some people at this conference who were saying that some people feel like, oh, well, Hamilton did it, and so now we're done, and so now we can just go back to how things were. Um, and so it, kind of, it sort of cuts both ways, especially there were many performers of color who were saying that they thought that everything would change, and in some ways it hasn't, and in some ways it hasn't. But in terms of the writing, absolutely it has. I think it's allowed different kinds of composers and lyricists to see that theater might be a place for that to happen, mm-hmm. um, not only um, on a record, or CD, or not only in the music scene, but that theater is a place
0: for that to happen as well. Yeah. Would you mention about Lynn manuel Miranda um, saying how it will be cast in high schools or elementary schools?
2: Yes, yes. Um, so uh, one of the things that I confronted constantly in, in Uh, researching this book and that it is a major preoccupation of mine because I teach in a university and because I'm always just concerned with who is the next generation going to be and what do my students get to do is um, the issue of race and casting. And um, there was an an incident some years ago, um, actually not that many years ago, where there was a community theater in Texas, not that far from Dallas, so not that far in the boondocks, where they did a production of Hairspray, which has a half African-American cast, and they did it in blackface. And that was, of course, bad, and um, they really wanted to do the show, the music is so great, it's so fun, it's great for kids, and they just, the people who were there claimed, and perhaps this is true, that they just did not know what was wrong with it. Um, And the writers... Um, immediately. They were like, stop, don't do this. And so MTI, who controls the rights and the writers, now include a little note when you license a show that you cannot use blackface. However, you do not have to cast that show with African American kids, if you don't have any, or kids of color in your community. If you have an all white community, you can still do that show, but you need to represent through clothing or costume or some other way that these are the one people and these are the other people. To me, that seems a little hard to do because it is about racial integration in the 1960s, but these are the things that that people who are doing shows think about. You know, you want to do hairspray, it's awesome, it's a great story, it's so cute, it's, you know, liberal, it's progressive, it's whatever it is, but you have only white kids. how are you going to do this show? So similar things getting to your question, um, similar things have happened within the Heights because it is a fantastic show. Young people love it. The music is fantastic and it's actually a very easy show to do. It's easy to sing. Um, it's infectious. It's lovely. It's delightful. Well, it's about a Latino community. So what are you going to do if you only have what usually is white kids? Um, and as of now, professional productions are still cast with, was your question about In the Heights or about Hamilton? It was about Hamilton. Oh, I'll answer that. Okay. So now, so actually, right. So In the Heights, In the Heights as of now, I forgot. I was lost, right. I'm. Okay. Anyway, um, In the Heights, when it's licensed in schools, can be cast in any way. That's something that, that um... Uh, that Lynn manuel Miranda and Tommy Cale, the director, have decided. So you can actually do In the Heights with all, with all white kids, and because it's in a school. Um, and uh, Hootis, the librettist, have agreed that that's part of the licensing. You do not have to have uh, all Latino kids. But Hamilton, right. So the point about Hamilton was that Lynn has said, we'll believe it when we see it, that when that show gets licensed um, you know, in like the 25th century, <laughs> um, you know, it will not get licensed until it stops selling out. They, they will not license it until then. And when it does, he says that they will allow cross-gender casting in the show and that they will allow girls to play all the men's parts. Because the problem with Hamilton, is, of course, is that there's three women and they're all stereotypical and it's really depressing for women in that in that show, but um, it's really lovely for the men and for other people, and it's a gra- and it's a great show. But it will be better when girls can play um, Hamilton and Jefferson. Took me a while to get to that answer.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for this. I've- I'm really motivated to think about the pipeline into professional music making in the theatre, partly because so I teach music at UC Santa Cruz. I teach the non-canonical music theory course, which is music theory for everybody who can't get into the music programme through the conventional routes, and I get a ton of musical theatre kids in my class, and they don't actually have a route into a conventional music programme, and we're not serving the people who would, be writing these musicals in these conventional programs. What do you think the, the fix for that is? How can we, within the academy, um, make make use of and serve the students who will be the next ones writing these musicals?
2: I think exactly the class that you're teaching. Uh, and, and I think that, that more of those kinds of classes. Um, Irving Berlin could not play the piano. He sang songs And other people played the music for him or he, you know, everything he wrote was in the key of F because that was all he could play. Um, Now, you know, not all of us are Irving Berlin, but I think that there need to be more opportunities for people who maybe don't have advanced music skills to be able to be composers, especially because many composers are not orchestrators. Or, to be an orchestrator, yes. Not, not only do you have to be able to play one instrument, you have to be able to play a lot of instruments, and you have to understand harmony, and you have to understand counterpoint, and you have to understand a lot of very difficult things about music, um, but not necessarily to be a composer. And I think that, that, that the more we lower the bar, not to lower the quality of the work. I think that a young, that a person, need not know a thing about music, to be able to hum something gorgeous and infectious and emotional and that helps to tell a story and that helps to create a character. Um, In the classes I teach, which are mostly musical theater history classes, but from a feminist perspective, um, I always say to my students on the first day, if you can read music and if you have some music theory, that's great, but musical theater is meant to be accessible. Musical theater thrives because it immediately touches our hearts and our heads, and it tells a story through music. What we're going to develop in this class and what we do in my class are listening. We're going to listen, and we're going to try to think about why does the opening song, why does The Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Music grab us? How does that happen? And I don't really care if they talk about melodic intervals or um, key changes or anything. I want them to try to describe in words what that effect is, and which is a very difficult thing to do, actually much harder if you don't have music theory to, get to explain why it works that way. But I think that that's how the class that you're talking about and this way just lowering the bar and understanding what is this genre supposed to do. This genre is supposed to reach us and touch us, and what skills do you need to do that? You just need to be able to hum something catchy, um, really.
3: Sure. Thank you. The work that you're doing on this, particularly to to um, shift the elitism around musical theatre, I think is really super important because. I thank you.
2: Yeah. I, so well, I you. think that's why um, I am ultimately really conflicted about the Disney stuff because when I went and visited these schools and saw all of these kids, you know, some who don't have homes, being in a play and loving it. And so many stories about kids' skills improving, kids staying in school, um, their parents coming. Um, One of the schools I visited in Nashville, the woman, a master teacher told me about, she had taught the kids in opposing gangs in Nashville. And the kids' children were now, the, the kids who she taught, their children were now in a play. And these people who had been in opposing gangs when they were high schoolers came together to build a set together for the play. I mean, it sounds so utopian and crazy, but it happens like weirdly through Disney musicals. (laughs) So it's very, it's very complicated, but I think that's, I've seen success in that program. And I think until another corporation has as much money and power and influence as Disney, um, that they probably will keep their hold on that um, anti-elitism.
1: And I think it's very, very, you know, important, um, especially because we look at it from an intellectual point of view and analyze it and what's happening, to see what the real effect of something is and why it's a successful phenomenon, because it does tie into something. It reminds me of, of, you know, of course, uh, I, I didn't watch daytime TV. And uh, I was buying some presents back in the 1970s for a friend of mine who was getting married to a woman with two daughters. Uh, I mean, the woman had two daughters already, um, and so I stopped at, at, in a mall, and there was a woman selling Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Ann, Andy dolls that she herself made. She was in a wheelchair. was in You know, it was in Madison, Wisconsin. She was from rural Wisconsin. And I happened to do what I often do: step, put my foot in, in my mouth. Uh, and I, I said to her, "This is such a wonderful thing you do. It's so much better than sitting around watching daytime TV." And she said, "Oh, I, I love to watch the, the daytime soap operas, you know." And so I, I, I quickly recovered and I said, "So why why do you like to watch the daytime soap operas?" And she said. It takes me places I've never been and shows me people making decisions I would never make in my life, and it expands my horizons. That's ex- not—I would never think that that would be the answer. And that's the important thing for people who study everything from the top to understand about where other people are coming from, their perspective, how it helps heal things. You know, it, that the story is about an orphan and people identify with that, and that makes a big difference in their life. It, it, it's hard to see, unless we have the diverse. Viewpoints of everybody to tell us, hey, stop getting down on us for liking this because we like this. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a valuable lesson for us to learn, too. And thank you very much yeah. for bringing it out. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much for coming.
2: Thank you. And thanks to Justin for the AV help.
1: Yeah. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion.